Welcome to Life, bringing you insight and experiences into love, relationships, and fertility with a focus on enjoying life and moving forward. On today's podcast, I'm here with Carol Kershaw to discuss what goes on in the lab and empowering yourself during your fertility journey and during COVID-19. Welcome to Life, Love, Insight, Fertility, Experiences. Today, I'm here with Carol Kershaw. Carol, do you want to talk a little bit about your background so people understand the depth and the scope of what you can bring to this conversation? Sure. Thank you so much for having me to talk today about the impact that COVID-19 is having on our infertility patients. Oh, it's um, so I have a PhD. I have a PhD in reproduction, uh-huh. uh, the physiology of reproduction, to be exact. I'm also a board-certified technical supervisor in embryology, and I've had a wealth of experiences that range from politics and advocacy for STEM and science through um, administration, business, small business, and I'm an inventor, so a bit of a tech background as well. Uh, It's amazing. It really is. And what I love about it is you've been able to pull everything together that you've done. I do just want to mention we're on Zoom because we're quarantined. So if there's a little um, shakiness or a little blip in the recording, it's because we are on Zoom and we're home quarantining or staying safe like everybody else. So, Carol, when we started chatting, um, actually just reaching out on um, Instagram, a big piece of it was I was so curious about what it was that you were doing and you have such incredible knowledge that you share and I run a support group and I I do a podcast um, focusing mostly on fertility. The support groups specifically are on fertility and just about life in general and today people are struggling so much with so many issues, some that are very, very specific to fertility and some are things that now everybody's going through and they're very much tied to what women on fertility journey go through. So I'm not sure where we should start, but maybe the fact that we're faced with this global pandemic and the impact that it's having on, on creating family and building a family. Mm-hmm. That a good sure. point? Yeah, absolutely. Right. That's where we should start is with the guidelines that came out several weeks ago. So yeah. the guidelines for fertility clinics were Finish up any patients that are in the middle of their cycle. Of course, it can be dangerous to let a patient who's been stimulated keep those eggs in their ovaries and without removing them. Um, ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome is a real uh, complication of stimulating a woman's ovaries. So mid-cycle patients, we were instructed to finish out. Um, we were we were given the guidelines not to start any new treatments except for in the cases where we have an emergent um, patient. That means somebody who's on an oncofertility preservation journey because they're starting chemotherapy imminently. Somebody I'm sorry, that's so important because when those guidelines came out, there was misinterpretation. There was misinterpretation. From the beginning, the guidelines always allowed for us to treat patients who are already in cycle and what we call emergent uh, cases. And those emergent cases not only allow for something like oncofertility, but they also allow for the severe mental health distress of a patient. So a lot of our patients are 32, 35, 
they're, they know they have a good ovarian reserve. Maybe they're doing this for gender selection to balance their families. Maybe they're doing it because they have a genetic um, problem with their eggs, but they know they have plenty of eggs. They just need that, that PGT testing or the, the diagnostic testing for their embryos. And so the concern um, is a little bit less for those patients. So from the very beginning, the guidelines have always allowed us to treat based on the physician-patient discretion. Patients who have severe cases where they need treatment right away because their fertility would be severely threatened. And for me, so I'm a clinical embryologist. And could you explain a little bit about what that is for people who may not know? Yeah, so I am the person who actually does the microsurgery to insert a sperm cell inside of an egg. And the person who um, recovers the oocytes from the, the patient is in the operating room, and I'm on the lab side. So the surgical technician will be handing me a tube of this follicular fluid, and I take it, and then I pour the follicular fluid into a Petri dish, and I'm searching for the patient's eggs. So as I'm searching, I'm pouring, I'm pipetting, I'm also taking those dishes out of my isolette and throwing them into a kick bucket on the ground. Um, and I'm also directly receiving the semen from a person's husband or partner and then processing it for the AXC or IVF procedure. So I'm centrifuging the semen. I'm so you're really the person who's making it happen. I'm working with bodily fluids, yes. And sometimes I even run blood work on the, the machine. So the, the blood tube, I, I know infertility patients know this all too well. You cap the blood tube with a rubber stopper, and that stopper is really in there tight. When I'm on the lab side, I have to work that stopper out of the tube. And when I do, it pops out of the top of the tube. So all of these, I, I'm describing be, this to people because I think people don't know what goes into embryology. And it's, it's not just making the embryos and doing those microsurgeries, but I'm, there's no way that I can physically distance myself from a patient's most intimate bodily fluids and their husband. So really when you're talking about us, it's the workers, creating the embryos in the lab, the surgical technicians, even the nurses who are on these front lines and cannot socially distance ourselves. So we have a lot of patients who are, of course, understandably reacting out of fear. They feel like they're right at the edge of their, that precipice of a fertility journey, and they want to continue their cycles. But the doctor's job is to really balance that of who am I going to risk my staff for? Who is an urgent enough case that I'm going to ask all of my staff to put themselves at risk for? So that the job of the fertility physician right now is a very tough one. Um, ultimately, they're the arbiter of these cases. Yeah, I'm sorry for interrupting, but it, it's who am I going to put my staff at risk for? And I think the other piece is bringing the woman in and having them be at risk getting there. So okay. the staff is at horrific risk, potentially, 
But, you know, I hear these stories from my patients that they're waiting in their cars and mm -hmm. get a phone call to then enter into the office. Yep. And that's, you know, we're, we are doing everything we can to be able to see patients safely at our practices. And having one patient at a time in the waiting room is reducing the risk for everybody. But of course, we know that COVID-19 can live in the air for three hours. So the patients themselves also need to understand that this, even though we're doing everything we can, those patients who are insisting on being seen and continuing their cycles, they have to really consider, you know, how it is my personal risk of never having a child outweighed by the risk of doing all these things right now. The whole, the whole process, thank you for taking the time to explain that, but you know, the whole process is the staff, especially um, in your area where mm -hmm. you're trying to, to put the egg and the sperm together, where you're trying yeah, to open absolutely. up the tube. It's just, it's, it's really remarkable. And it's something that I think most people don't think about. Well, absolutely. And the, the physicians have a very powerful lobby. And the patients have very vocal and very powerful lobbies. And everybody wants fertility treatments to start again. Yes. Um, but the one, the one class of people who doesn't have a good voice to speak for them is the workers of the labs. And I think it's, it's hard for us. Everybody wants to get back to, nor to normal, right? Everybody does. This anxiety is it's hard on us because we're worried about our job. It's hard for us thinking about our patients. It's hard for us knowing that the patients we're treating, um, you know, I, per, personally, I never stopped seeing patients. I've still seen the one or two patients that where in, in my head, I know if I don't treat this patient, they are not going to be able to build a family. So I, I'm taking that calculated risk too by showing up at my job every day mm -hmm. to, to help those patients it is which is remarkable well i, I don't know what word to use besides that right now. well you know, the, the, science, the science behind infertility medicine really is remarkable in it, just it, it, in just 40 years we went from you know not nothing to being able to completely build these families in in the lab and the lab environment is a substitute for a human organ think about that we have created a lab environment that substitutes for a fallopian tube where the site of fertilization is. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling, right? I, I had the privilege, yeah, I had the privilege of talking to Dr. Owinger, who was actually delivered the first IVF baby. He was in the room um, when she was born in the United States, not in Europe, but in the United States. And when you hear him talk and you hear his stories, it is... It's just remarkable. I have to think of another word to use right now of what he has seen and the progress that he has been involved in firsthand. So what you're doing at this point to me is still so cutting edge when you start to talk about the genetics and the stem cell work. That mm -hmm. also is. Um, it really is cutting edge. And, I, you know, there was a very, um, um, uh, very, um, controversial article that came out just a few weeks ago. It was about IVF add-ons. So whether they actually make a difference for the pregnancy rates of patients or not. 
So yeah. a lot of these treatments are coming directly from the research lab, directly into the IVF lab. They don't pass through FDA testing first. And on the one hand, that's good because, for example, ICSI, the, the main procedure that allows us to overcome 90% of male infertility, mm -hmm. um, that never went through FDA trials or um, uh, clinical trials, I should say. Um, it was immediately applied to patients for their benefit. So these are um, what we call procedures. They're not diagnostic. They are um, procedures that we're doing with cells. Mm -hmm. So the, the burden of proof is lowered for those because we're not treating or diagnosing inside of a human body. If that That's makes sense. Interesting. It, yeah. it is. It's interesting because when you hear of uh, ITSI, it's, I never say the word right, I'm sorry. ICSI. <laughs> when you hear about it, right, um, it's been so helpful for so many people. That, millions, millions of babies. And if, if I didn't realize it went straight to the lab. Yes. And it, after that, it did go through some clinical trials, mm -hmm. but it was like, um, it, it was basically like, Somebody thought of it and it was being used that week. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially. And, and a lot of um, discoveries in reproduction are that way. And it can be a double edged sword because it has created these amazing things very quickly for our patients. But then there are also some technologies where people are saying, okay, this could be an expensive add on, but is the benefit really there for patients? Yeah. And so that was testing is now the the biggest, one of the biggest controversies. It's a very complicated system that we haven't really been able to study very well because of the, um, the number of, of factors complicating the procedure. So it's very difficult to create a um, hypothesis-driven study that you can do a randomized, controlled, double-blinded uh, trial on. And those are the gold standard of, of medicine. We really, that's what we really want to get to. So um, one of the biggest things is that every single lab has their own culture system. So it's, there's nothing standard. The lab has its own special sauce. And that's going to be a combination of training of the staff, the media used, the reagents used, and the, the different protocols that are used. And they're, and if you can imagine the way that languages have evolved, there's a different language for each region. This is exactly the way that lab procedures have evolved too. Wow. So every lab is just so unique um, that it's confounding even the best designed studies. So we, we still don't have clear and definitive evidence that PGT, um, which is pre-implantation genetic testing, is better for our patients than not testing. Right, so when this first started um, with the patients who I was working with, I, I remember one vividly, who I'm still in touch with actually, um, and I'm happy to say she's pregnant with her second right now, with donor eggs, but a lot of people were using the mosaic at that point. Yeah. And, and so there was mixed opinion between for some doctors even under the same umbrella of a facility as to whether or not to do the testing or do the mosaic and in some places that i'm aware of 
they would make the parent or the intended parent sign a release if they did not do that. And then you hear other doctors say, you know what, people get pregnant naturally, there's no testing, and it's, it's the same that way. So I've heard both sides, and I've heard from the patient perspective a lot of confusion about which there, step to there's take. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of confusion everywhere. Um, yeah. Because I think what, what we see in the lab is that in this specific lab, we are running the statistics. And we know for a fact that our patients who undergo PGTA are getting pregnant faster. But when you start pooling the data from all the different labs, it really confuses the answer because then you have a variety of protocols and a variety of training. And it's, you, you, you get um, this effect when you pool the data that makes the answer unclear. So I'm thinking of an apple. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm thinking of different varieties of an apple. So uh -huh. we know it's an apple, but we have all apples right? Of them coming to fruition. <laughs> so it, it's it's an interesting way. So in today's environment with women who are home, who mm -hmm. are so anxious to start their fertility journey. And I I work with people who run the gamut of age. Um, the ones who unfortunately have conditions that are medical that need to be brought to the clinics immediately are, but then those who are getting a little older, so they're not in their early 30s, but they're closer to 40, there's anxiety there. So yeah. the way the guidelines were written, it's a little um, up to interpretation Absolutely. as to what the mental health impact is having on the woman postponing. Yep. And, and I know that ASRM is taking a look at DOR or diminished ovarian reserve now to see if they should specifically comment on that. Mm -hmm. um, in the scientific literature, there's no evidence that a woman's egg quantity or quality is going to change within two or three months. There's not a single physician or, or person who can point you to a definitive study showing that proof positive that the egg quality or quantity is going to change over just a few months time. Now, that is so important. I'm sorry, for yeah. that is so important for women to hear that if you're 39, 40, your egg quality is not going to change within a couple of months. No, I find fact, there's a lot you can do to actually improve your egg quality in this downtime. Uh -huh. so there's been a number of studies that have shown that a Mediterranean diet and relentlessly cutting um, refined carbohydrates really helps with fertility and with egg quality. So increasing the olive oil and following those Mediterranean um, dietary guidelines and really decreasing any refined carbohydrates to one serving or less a day. And this is something that when I'm working, I know I, I want to grab a bagel every morning. It's the easiest thing to do is for me to grab a bagel and eat it in the car on the way to the lab, right? Mm -hmm. I, I find it almost impossible in my day-to-day -day routine when I'm on the treadmill of going to work and getting home and making dinner and getting all uh, the you know, dishes done at night and laundry and everything like that to cut car carbohydrates. I need those carbohydrates for fuel to get me through the day. Hey, absolutely. <laughs> a piece of chocolate or whatever, a bagel, a piece of chocolate, a piece of cake. Yes, 
sure it is. I do think one of the um, you know blessings of this time is this time to slow down, get off that treadmill, think about the meal prep, do more home cooking, and we can prepare our bodies for the coming fertility procedures. Yeah. And so the diet, I absolutely, you know, not from necessarily, I do read the science and from a scientific perspective, absolutely it has an impact, but I see it. I see it in people who I work with. You know, one woman who I'm working with, she had um, one last chance of her own embryo prior, sure. prior to being, you know, maybe going down the road of a donor egg. Mm-hmm. And she changed her diet within a short period of time. I was a little concerned about how much weight she took off so quickly, but she wound up conceding with the change in diet. I have to go to a practical perspective, though, for a minute, if you don't mind. So sure. we're all at home. We're really not supposed to be going to the market, right? Fresh Direct or Instacart or whatever it is that you use, wherever you live, is running out of certain things. So sure. in order to improvise our diet change, you know, and put some fresh vegetables and fruit into it and some lean fish or meat. We could all be a little bit creative. So even though it's fresh, it could be frozen. We could. Absolutely. And I think the important thing is that it's vegetables, not that it's organic or not organic or, you know, it's a a frozen or a canned vegetable is going to be nearly as good as a fresh vegetable. Right, or even even if we can like learn how to prep meals, I'm not sure where you live, I think it's all the same, everybody's homeschooling. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. we're cleaning the house, doing exactly what you said, cleaning the house, making dinner, like people are becoming chefs, they're, they're trying to teach. I mean, I had one woman who called the school actually, and she said to the school for her 13 year old, I cannot do this, I, I can't, I can't do my job. Could be a teacher. Manage, be a teacher. And they said, well, if he doesn't do it, we're going to fail him. Mm-hmm. And she actually said, we're going to fail him. She said, because I, I can't do it. So I think everybody is, that's a dramatic case, but I think everybody's kind of at their wit's end about how to manage. But maybe what we could take from this is meal prep. I know there's a long oh, way to know that. You know, and you make oatmeal, make enough for a few days and heat it up. You know, we could learn little tricks of the trade so that when we do go back to work, or we go back to our regular routine, we have this kind of healthier eating Mediterranean diet in mind. Absolutely. And and so there's tons of recipes out there, tons of things we could do. And you know, the other thing that I've seen a lot of research on is the difference that daily exercise and body movement. We're in the same place. When we're working, I know the same thing happens to me, I try to hit that three day a week mark. As long as I'm working out three days a week, it's gonna be okay. But really what we wanna do is do less time on more days of the week. All the research indicates that half an hour on more days of the week is is better than three days of the week at an hour or an hour and 20 minutes. Now, what do you Uh, think of 10 minute intervals? I love 10 minute intervals. For my own self, I have an Apple Watch now. So it really helps me when I can, I, I think before I got my Apple watch and I, I'm not plugging Apple specifically, I know there's Fitbits and there's all kinds of other gadgets and everything that people can get, but 
before I think I felt like, oh, that five or 10 minutes was just frittered away and it wasn't adding up to anything. But now that I can see definitively that the 10 minute intervals throughout the day stretched out are adding up to 30 minutes at the end of the day and a certain amount of calories burned, I think that really helped me to change my perspective on the 10 minute interval um, workout. So now I really try to get it in where, wherever I can, even if it's five or 10 minutes, you know, I prefer to have two 15 minutes mm-hmm. because that helps to get your heart rate a little into that, that um, level more consistently. But before I think my mentality was, you know, it's, it's gotta be done all at once. And, and, um, and then of course some days you can't do that. So then you, you skip it entirely. And now my mentality is much more like it's way better to be doing this throughout the day, be standing up more throughout the day, be getting those five or 10 minute chunks in all throughout the day and more consistently every day of the week. Yeah, no, I know. I think that's great. So for people who don't have children yet, and um, of course we want to talk about the diet, we want to talk about exercise. I, I talk about smile therapy a lot. I'm a big believer in smile therapy because of the impact it has on your body. So even if you're a little sad, if you can smile, you will change the chemical balance in your body. So sometimes even just dancing is a good activity that will get your heart rate up, it'll get you sweating a little bit, and it'll get you moving. And it will make you a little happier. Absolutely. So it sounds like such a silly little thing, but it is something to try at home right now while we're being confined. Well, you know, I always say that fertility patients are sort of like Olympic athletes. To a a normal athlete, Mm -hmm. if you do something to shave a second or two off of your time, that doesn't make a difference. But getting your pregnancy is like winning an Olympic gold medal. When you're going through that fertility journey, you're going to do everything you can to shave a second off your time. You know what I mean? And those things, little things, are not going to make a difference to the average person. Right. They might make a difference for your fertility journey. When they add, when you add it all up, all those seconds become a minute, right? So that's the difference between what you, you know, between having a pregnancy at the end and not having a pregnancy sometimes. Right. So I think that this is really important to keep in mind. I also think that it's important to have a support system right now um, and to have people that you could talk to that are sharing similar situations. Because when I, when I have my support groups, when I hold my support groups, I very often talk about certain things. And one of the things is communication and expressing your needs and getting in tune to what it is that you really need. And we all know that Sometimes we get upset if somebody says the wrong thing to us or we don't feel like answering them. But if you could come together with people, whether it's on some type of a forum or a formal support group or a group chat or Facebook or Instagram, whatever it is, or a a close friend or an acquaintance who's going through this, it could really help you through this process because we're all faced with a lot of decisions and I'm so grateful that you were able to talk about what goes in the lab and what goes on in the lab and why maybe we do want to postpone and not be overly concerned about postponing, walking in and waiting those couple of months till everybody says it's safe. But we can look at our diet, we can look at exercise, but we also need to look at the impact of emotional support and being comfortable enough to be able to say what you need and what you don't need. 
Mm -hmm. And right now I know that people who have previously bought journals but didn't have time to write in them and do that journaling of, uh, for their mental health and, and all of those um, reasons, now all of a sudden have a little bit of time to start writing in that journal. And, and really, I think we should keep focusing on the, the positives that will come out of this. Um, I, you know, humanity, this is such a sacred season for so many people across different faiths. It's the Passover, Easter, Ramadan time. And all of those are great uh, legends of our, of our uh, societies. They all focus on humanity overcoming some dark period of plague or slavery or uh, whatever it is. And, and we know that humanity has overcome many things in the past and will continue to do so. Suffering is part of the human condition. It is part of what makes us human. And there's, um, there's not, not to have like a radical positivity that's saying, you know, you should appreciate your suffering and all of these things. It's not that you should appreciate your suffering, but appreciate that we cannot have a human experience without having suffering. Right. And we grow from it, which sounds so great, but we do, we grow from it and it's what we take from it. So absolutely. So yeah. read your read your Victor Frankel in this in this time too of <laughs> this downtime and read about the meaning of human suffering <laughs> and how you know people had hope in the most direst of of situations. Um, so so uplifting. I just love his writing. Yeah, it's it's really about rebirth. I think in many ways these three so come together survival and rebirth. And I think a lot of fertility people will say who are going through this journey, our fertility patients will say, but there's been so much suffering already. How much more do I have to suffer? And so I love journaling. I believe in it. I don't necessarily believe in typing on the computer as much as I do with hand, mind, motion. You know, if you keep your mind body, if you keep your mind busy and your hands busy or your body busy, you're able to preoccupy yourself a little bit and focus and it's so important. But when you're journaling, and I actually give everybody I work with a journal because I think it's so important, but when you journal, if you could also keep in perspective or make sure you put down some perspective in it and some thoughts about something that's, that's positive. And if you can't think of it at the moment because this is too hard, go back to it, read it in a little while after you've done something and you may feel a little bit differently. I try and have people look at, you know, go back to smiling again, just one or two things a day that make you smile. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be your cat. It could be a commercial. It could be, you know, anything at all, but we need to focus a little bit on that also. So if we can't look at gratitude at this point in time, we can look at like moments of something that brings us happiness. Sure. Even, even moments of pause and moments of reflection. Yes. You know, if, if you can't find anything to be happy about, that you can always now come back to that, that at least you have a moment off of this treadmill to have some time to reflect. And that in and of itself, you know, over the past few weeks has really helped me um, that I've been able to just 
notice the the things that I just don't normally have time to notice, you know, <laughs> even the spiders growing in the corners of my of my house that I vacuumed out. I had so much gratitude for them that they were able to grow so big in the corners of my ceiling without me ever noticing. And then now I have had this time to actually clean the cobwebs out of my house. <laughs> I think everybody can relate. <laughs> I love this expression, which is pause and perspective. And I started to use it several years ago. I would ask people to just, you know, hit pause for a minute. And the purpose of pausing is to gain perspective. Mm -hmm. And if you're having a lot of anxiety, which there's no way that people aren't having some anxiety at some point during this, so it doesn't have to be a lot, but even a touch, if you could just take a minute and just say, wait, what's really going on? What am I really experiencing? And put this all into perspective, it could help. I'm not oh. trying to make everything right, but it could help the situation. Take a deep breath. And I know a lot of fertility doctors are still meeting with patients by telemedicine right yeah. now yeah. and helping to have a good plan that you can put directly into action when patients can start to be seen um, directly again. So I know that, um, you know, there's, there are certain things that can still be done during this time. Like for example, if you are, um, tracking your cycle to try to prepare for that eventual FET. You know, keep tracking that, keep tracking your last menstrual period, keep communicating that information with your doctor's office so that you can have a good plan to start your progesterone when, when you're ready for to prepare your lining for that FET again. Mm -hmm. Another good thing that you can do is if you've had any embryos that were biopsied but came back with no result or inconclusive, you can have those embryos thawed now and rebiopsied, um, so that can help you to prepare um, exactly which embryo you will be transferring if if you've already had embryos made. How can I ask? I, there's been some anxiety also around. Well, what's happening with my embryos right now? Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I can understand the anxiety because. Just in the past few months, there was two very highly publicized incidents of tank failures. And those tank failures happened with, at good IVF practices with full staffing and all the monitoring that we do. And it can still happen to anybody. So those liquid nitrogen tanks are a vacuum tank kind of like a thermos is that you would take hot soup with your work. So there's a, a layer of air and the, the vacuum cannot be broken. If you, if you put your thermos in the dishwasher, you break the vacuum of, of your thermos and your soup will never be hot at lunchtime anymore, right? And it's the same thing with keeping embryos cold. So there, I know the anxiety, it, it has been hyped a little bit up by the media because of these two incidents. And it was, it was very um, uh, unusual for two incidents to happen in such a short period of time. I mean, we've had 25, 30 years go by without any such incidents like that happening in the field. So what we're doing right now is there's always staff in the IVF lab, no matter what. So there are staff going every day, still checking the liquid nitrogen levels, filling the tanks, the alarms are all still functioning. 
I know a lot of practices have now started monitoring their bank of, of, of um, doers with a thermal imaging camera. So that thermal imaging camera can actually start to give you advanced notice that there is a, a little breach somewhere around the tank because it will show a cold spot. So there's all kinds of monitoring and alarms now that are happening um, and, and even from a distance. But I know that every embryology practice still has embryologists going in to check the tanks um, daily. That's so good. That's so good for people to realize and to know because, you know, unfortunately, it's always the, um, the problems, you know, or get publicized. Yeah. And it's been on people's minds. So thank you. I think this has been so helpful for people. I certainly hope it has been for, so that they can walk away with information on really the impact of waiting a little bit, of empowering yourself, of what it is that really somebody in your situation does, of putting everything together, and what happens in the lab, and how important it is that we not have COVID-19 get into it for so Absolutely. many reasons, mm -hmm. um, and really how to empower yourself. And I'd love it if we could just spend the last couple of minutes, if this is okay with you. I know I didn't speak to you about this because you're incredibly modest, but if you could tell people a little bit about the app that you developed, which is really, really pretty brilliant and empowering to people. So I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but- you know, I'll definitely talk about it. So let me start at the beginning of this story. At 37, I became pregnant with my own miracle baby. And I was in research for 15 years before that. And when I got pregnant with my own miracle baby, it really caused me to take a hard look at my career. And I had been dependent on grant funding. I had done, you know, many other things. And I decided that I needed something that would be so impactful that I would be able to get out of bed and leave my miracle baby for every day. So I found my way back to clinical embryology through this very circuitous route in this you know, other career that I had for 15 years. And starting off in clinical embryology, I was just like everybody else on the bottom rung because I had to develop my own clinical decision-making. And the very first module that we developed for the app was a way for junior embryologists to compare their clinical decision-making to senior embryologists that had many years in the field. Oh, okay. So that was the very first piece that I, that I found that was lacking. So the app only had one module at that time, and that was, for example, show me a picture of an embryo and say, what would you grade this embryo? And then be able to see what would a senior person grade? Or what would you do with this embryo? Would you freeze it? Would you biopsy it? Would you? What a fabulous teaching tool. Yeah, thank you. Aside from the research, just great, yeah. So that was kind of the first thing. And what inspired that really was the senior embryologists have a tremendous responsibility and workload. They don't really have time to sit with you and to tell you everything that they know, right? So embryology is one of these fields where it's very difficult to obtain clinical competency and very hard to obtain the kind of decision-making that only comes after many years of, of seeing whether these decisions result in a, the life cycle of a decision is so long. Uh-huh. 
We just froze for a second. I'm sorry. Oh, it's okay. Okay. Yeah. So the the decision of of that you make as an embryologist, mm -hmm. the um, impact of that decision, it's such a long time. It's such a long life cycle. You know what I mean? Yeah. So years and years of experience. Years and years of experience, and it's very hard to obtain that competency without having the actual years of experience. So I entered with a lot of, of book knowledge, but not a lot of clinical competency. Mm -hmm. So in any case, the app, which is called ART Compass, so ART stands for Assisted Reproductive Technologies, mm -hmm. it grew by modules. So as I progressed through my training, I discovered other areas of data management that needed a solution in the IVF lab. And so where we are connecting with patients now is that the patient actually has their own patient portal inside of our app and all of the lab information is connected to the patient so they can see their embryos they can see exactly what they have in their cryo storage um, they can see the grades of the embryos they can see the genetic um, um, the testing results and communicate with their physician and communicate with the lab and really what it does is it puts I'm sure you've had this experience at some point as a patient where you've talked to a financial person and the doctor and the doctor's coordinator and everybody has a different idea of what's supposed to be happening. Not everybody's on the same page. So this app literally now puts everybody on the same page. The administrator can look at the patient's cycles and know exactly what's happening um, and all the way down from the lab director, the lab staff, the clinical staff, administrators. That's doctors. a perfect medical record that they've been create, trying to create for years and years, you know, right. specifically for fertility. That, that's what it sounds like. But now it can exactly. actually be in your hand so that yeah. when you go to the doctor's office, I've, I have on more than one occasion spoken to people who say they have to fill their doctor in when their doctor walks into the room because they're going from patient to patient to patient. So it's not that they don't love their doctor. It's just... The doctor can't keep up with where they are on their cycle. So sure. this really empowers both the physician and the patient. And yes, yeah. And really, the information itself comes from the lab. So it, it really connects the IVF lab, which has been very um, disconnected and all of the data has been on paper charts. Mm -hmm. So really it's, it's getting that info from the IVF lab to the physician in a timely manner for them to make clinical decisions about the patient's cycle. That's great. That is it. And how do people go about getting this if they want it? Is it online or is it, how do you get this? Is it an app? It is an app, but um, the fertility clinic has to be using it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's the, the difficult part is that the, the patient, if the, what the patient should do if they feel strongly about it, that they, they want to be able to see their cycle information in an app on their phone and communicate with their physician that way, is they should bring this to the attention of the IVF clinic. That would be great, because it's really, I think it's such a win-win for everybody, this app, because everybody's got the information, everybody's on the same page, and we didn't really touch on finance at all, but and we don't need to, but the reality is this is a financially, um, impactful journey for everybody and Absolutely. and it's really important to keep that in mind people 
take money from their parents, which impacts their retirement. People have to mortgage their homes because they really want a family. They max out oh, their yeah. family. Hey. Yeah. They yeah. really rape together. Yeah, we're trying to pass laws. You know, I do a little bit of advocacy. We're trying to have laws passed to make it more affordable so that people can build families. But even as laws get passed, it's still an expensive proposition. So I would encourage people to look into, into ART Compass. I think it's a wonderful, empowering tool. Um, is there anything else we should cover before we, we say goodbye? I, I don't think so. We have covered, we've run the gamut of topics. Really, I think we have, and I so appreciate it. Um, well, happy holiday. Happy holidays. Yes, and I hope it's a wonderful new beginning for everybody. <laughs> All right, thanks so much. Thank you.